Hey everybody, welcome to the New Market Alliance Church podcast, where you're invited to not just attend church or watch church, or in this case, listen to church, but actually go and be the church. For everything you need to know about our community, be sure to go to newmarketalliance.ca and maybe even drop us a line to let us know you're listening. We read everything you send and we'll be sure to get back to you. Our worship service happens every Sunday at 10 a.m. in person or streaming online. We want you to know you absolutely matter to God and you absolutely matter to us. Everyone is welcome and wanted. Now, let's join today's teaching. To the angel of the church at Pergamon, this is the important message to you from the one who has the sharp sword with two edges. I know where you live, right under the shadow of Satan's throne, but you still continue to trust me. You never once denied my name, even when the pressure was worst, when they martyred Antipas, my witness who stayed faithful to me on Satan's turf. But I have a few things to say against you. Why do you indulge that Balaam crowd? Don't you remember that Balaam was an enemy agent, seducing Balak and sabotaging Israel's holy pilgrimage by throwing unholy parties? And why do you put up with the Nicolaitans? who do the same thing. Some people among you do the bad things that the Nicolaitans teach. Enough. Don't give in to them. I'll be with you soon. I'm fed up with it, and if you do not change how you live, I will quickly come to punish you. I will fight against those bad people with my sharp sword that comes out of my mouth. Are your ears awake? Listen. Listen carefully to the Spirit blowing through the churches. To anyone who wins against Satan, I will give some of my special food called manna, I will also give give each of them a white stone. I'll write a new name on that stone, your secret name. Yeah, nicely done. I I won't do this little illustration with you, but I saw a pastor one time, and he asked the congregation, how many of you battle with self-deception? And a few people in the crowd put up their hands. Then he asked, how many of you know somebody who is very self-deceived? You guessed it. Every hand up. And uh, it's like um, they knew somebody else who was guilty of self-deception. Chances are you do too. You know, one of my favorite sitcoms, Community, I remember Britta got very defensive and she said, I don't have any blind spots. And even if I did, I'd know what they were. But that's not how that works, right? The thing is, you don't know what your blind spots are. Uh, You don't know how you're deceiving yourself. Um, By their very nature, they are something that needs to be pointed out to you. And so Jesus has to come and point out the blind spots, the deception to this church in Pergamum. It's a a city located in what we would uh, call Turkey. And uh, let's just quickly review the context from where this letter comes from. The date is about AD 96. It happens to be the last year of the reign of Emperor Domitian. And so John, the disciple of Jesus, is old. He's in his mid-80s. Beryl, who I know is watching right now, uh, she's like, you think mid-80s is old? Like... Hold my beer. I, I can. Uh, John is living in the prison island of, very good, Patmos. 
And uh, he's there, frankly, because he wouldn't compromise, at least not on who he would worship. And then on uh, this Sunday, it says, while he was in the spirit, John is given this fresh revelation. It's a fresh apocalypse, which means... What? What? Unveiling. It's like pulling the curtain back. And the curtain is drawn back by Jesus to reveal Jesus in all his glory. And then John sees seven lampstands, which represent seven what? Churches. And where is the risen, reigning, glorious Savior of the world standing in relation to those churches? In the middle, in the middle. And notice that Jesus introduces himself in a different way to every church, a a way that's sort of like insider language, a way that the church would say, oh, he really does, he really does know us, doesn't he? And so why does Jesus present himself to the Pergamum church this way? The, The one who has the sharp two-edged sword. I will come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Why does Jesus use this sword imagery? Well, what is the logo or the symbol of Canada? Sorry? Shout it. A leaf, a maple leaf, which I'm sure inspires great fear in the heart of our enemies. Well, you know, as I researched this, it turns out the symbol of the city of Pergamum was a sword. Pergamum was actually one of the few cities to which Rome had given the right of the sword, which means that they had the the power and the privilege to inflict capital punishment. But why is the one we call the Prince of Peace uh, using such warlike language? He's speaking to the church like soldiers instead of parishioners? Well, because the church in Pergamon was living in the midst of a fierce battle. It was obvious in Pergamon in that day, but I would submit it's happening today in Newmarket and Aurora and Richmond Hill. It's happening in Rome and in Washington and Tokyo and Kiev and Manila in Rio, in Bogota. It's a battle being fought, not so much against soldiers, but against worldviews and philosophies, against principalities and powers, against this dark world. And in fact, I'd say the outcome of every other battle sort of hinges on what the outcome of this battle is, which is ultimately a battle for the mind. Psychologists say we are the sum total of our thoughts. And, and, and Proverbs says, a man, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. So, so Jesus says, I will make war with the sword of my mouth. The, the, the battle for the mind in Pergamum and the battle for us in Canada is a battle being waged on two fronts. First, it's a battle coming from the outside, Okay. And secondly, discouragingly, often it's, a, it's an attack coming from the inside. So, so the church was under this overt attack 
from the outside, but also this covert attack from the inside. They were standing firm against the overt pressure coming from the city and from the culture, but they were either unaware or maybe negligent about dealing with the covert pressure coming from so-called Christians. And so Jesus, uh, Peter, Paul, they keep warning us in scripture to be on guard because, you know, most growing Christians usually are able to spot ideas and behaviors that are just blatantly uh, anti-God, contrary to God's ways. But ideas that come sort of wrapped in religious language from religious type people, those are more difficult to spot. And honestly, that's why it can sometimes almost be harder to be a faithful disciple in a country that sort of has a, a Christian veneer, you know, um, a cultural form of Christianity as, as opposed to a country that is, you know, militantly, obviously opposed to Jesus and the church. At least, you know, the lines are clearly drawn in places like UAE or China. The opposition is overt and, and obvious. In a churched continent like North America, sometimes uh, the call is coming from inside the house, uh, to borrow a horror movie cliche. Now, in terms of the opposition that's coming from the outside, uh, politically incorrect, Jesus lays out his assessment of the city of Pergamon, and he says, I know where you live. It's where Satan has his throne. Uh, wait, what? Is this Satan's hometown? Is, it, is this where his corporate office is? I, I don't think the Chamber of Commerce was super pleased with that catchphrase. Um, I know Satan is the prince of the air. I know he's got henchmen in every town. What does, why is Jesus using this language about Pergamum? Um, I hope I don't bore anyone with some history and context. It really helps me kind of get a sense of where this verse is coming from. And, uh, you know, we'll show some clips of Pergamum. You can see that it was, it was built on, on a high rock. They're perched on a rock throne, if you will. And they were the capital city of the Roman province of Asia. And they were the center of Caesar worship. Uh, they had built the first temple of worship to Caesar Augustus. So the emperor cult, if you will, had powerful sway over, over the city, over people's minds. And behind the city, there's also this thousand foot hill where a whole host of demon temples and altars were built. Um, one was dedicated to the worship of Asclepios, and that was believed to be the god of healing. Uh, what was the symbol of Asclepios, uh, you ask? What was the embodiment of Asclepios? I'm glad you asked. Asclepios was the serpent. Um, does that ring a bell to anybody? And these cultic priests would actually use snakes in their weird healing services they believed that the touch of the snake was the touch of, of God himself. And so people flocked from all over the world to, to touch this serpent in hopes of being healed. 
Um, in scripture, folks, the serpent represents the evil one, the one who wants to seduce people away from the living God, away from the one who actually heals. You know, um, in the Alliance family, you're, you're in an Alliance church right now, and I know we don't talk about our distinctives a lot here, but we have this logo, and it represents what we call the, the fourfold gospel. It's, it's very Jesus-focused, and, and for all the issues inherent in denominations, and, which include politics and bureaucracy and you know, debatable theology even. I'm so proud to be part of a, a family of churches that is very, what we call, Christocentric. You know, in other words, we, we highlight, we emphasize, we are guided by um, making Jesus first among all things, stressing his life and his work and, and his words. It, it really is all about Jesus. And in this fourfold gospel, we say that the, we are emphasizing the work of Jesus as our Savior cross, our sanctifier, which is the, the goblet, our coming king, the crown, and the laver, the, the picture represents uh, Jesus is our healer. And folks, Jesus is the source of divine healing. He will not be imitated. He will not accept phonies, particularly those working with the accuser of the brethren. Maybe that's why Jesus calls Pergamum, the throne of Satan. You know, the other dominant temple on that hill was this one that uh, was to honor Zeus and uh, considered the greatest of the Greek gods, the one that they called Zeus the Savior. And the altar of Zeus was built on a ledge that, that jutted out from the hillside about 800 feet uh, from street level. It's like, it's like every person in Pergamum lived in the shadow of its altar. It, is that why he addresses Pergamum as the throne of Satan? We too have our own shadow of idolatry that we're living under, don't we? Whether it's materialism or celebrity, we have our own. In every way, Pergamum was a center for ideas, for philosophies that, that just blinded people to the truth the truth about God, the truth about the world, the truth about themselves. The deceiver had deceived most of the people in this city. But Jesus commends the church for standing strong in these worldviews. He says, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. I mean, the fact that there is even a Christian church in that city is, is testament to the power of the gospel and to the resilience of this church. Even when enemies of Jesus tried to stamp out the church by killing one of its leaders, uh, someone we really don't know much about, Antipas, um, wouldn't you know it? Not only did the church survive that intimidation, they grew. You, you see that example all throughout church history, don't you? There's this old saying, uh, trying to stamp out the gospel is like hammering a nail. The harder you hit it, the deeper it goes. Okay, but Jesus does have a complaint against this church, a serious one. Uh, even though the Christians of Pergamum 
were faithfully resisting the influence of the culture, the, the influence that was coming from outside. They were being influenced from lies from within, within their own tribe. Uh, he says in verse 14, nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food, sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. They're vigilant on the front lines. Meanwhile, there's this Trojan horse in their midst. And Jesus says, you got to deal with this. Start by repenting for even allowing it. Uh, whether it's ignorance, whether it was a lack of discernment or just outright people-pleasing, repent. Repent, therefore, he says. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Don't make me come down there, y'all. Deal with this. Why is Jesus so intolerant? You know, in 2022, uh, tolerance is extolled as maybe the greatest virtue. Uh, I look at my kids' generation, um, and there's this new spirit of tolerance. Um, you know, the kinds of cliques and sub-cliques that Brent and I had to go to and through in high school uh, was just, we were incredibly segregated. The jocks, uh, the cheerleaders, the, the metalheads, uh, the skaters, the nerds, the drama geeks, the uh, punks and alternative kids, the brainiacs, and never the twain shall meet, right? There wasn't a lot of crossover going on. We wouldn't tolerate people if they had the wrong taste in music. Uh, and one of the things I celebrate about uh, this younger generation, uh, Gen, Gen Z, younger millennials, this increasing spirit of acceptance of the other. But there's a dark side to that as well. It's, it's a controversial opinion, and what I'm about to say, taken out of context, it could get a guy canceled. But let me just talk to the younger generation, if I could, for a second. I see your desire to be tolerant, to be inclusive, to be accepting. Those are all such good things. But, but you can be in danger of compromising acquiescing to the culture, to the shifting morals of the, of the times, to what Paul calls the spirit of the age. And I, I guess the question is, is everyone right when it comes to spiritual things? You know, increasingly your generation would say, yes. Who, who am I to say someone's beliefs are wrong? Here's why this is important, though. Because Jesus loves truth. Uh, he speaks truth. He is truth. And because he knows that falsehood and deception and lies, they actually enslave people. Um, tolerance, you know, is not a biblical virtue, believe it or not. Don't misunderstand me because patience is and empathy is and civility is and graciousness is and mercy is humility is but not tolerance so yeah you could say jesus is intolerant he's intolerant of lies because he passionately is intolerant of his people created in his image 
being enslaved, especially enslaved to false ideas, being taught and perpetuated in his name. So, so Jesus calls the Pergamum church to repent of its careless tolerance, you could say. Jesus is the one who says, only the truth will set you free. Uh, what are the first words of the gospel? The first words of, of out of Jesus' mouth as he begins his ministry. You can find it in, in Mark 1 and Matthew 4. It's repent. Repent for the kingdom of God is near. Again, that word, we talked about this, but it, the repent means stop, uh, turn around. Um, you're going the wrong way. Change your ways. It's the Greek metanoia, which means to change your mind. And, and the church of Jesus is to be, yes, radically welcoming, inclusive in every way, Jew, Gentile, male, female, uh, slave, free, everyone. But the church is not to be inclusive of every idea, of every worldview. All of us are welcome, but when we make Jesus Lord, then the call is to obey and submit our thinking to his thinking. And so I like how the Phillips version uh, renders Romans 12 verse 2. It says, don't let the world around you squeeze you into its mold, but let God remold your minds from within. In this letter, Jesus calls these false ideas, these lies, he calls them the teaching of, of Balaam or the teaching of the Nickelodeons. Two groups probably teaching the same thing. Uh, Nickelodeon is the Greek word. Balaam is the Hebrew word. They actually mean the same thing. They're, they're both translated as conquerors of the people, which is, I think, fitting because that's what lies always attempt to do, right? Conquer the minds of the people. And what were they teaching? Well, for time's sake, let me just, I'm just going to highlight one. Um, would few of you argue that we are in a sexually obsessed modern culture? Uh, I got to tell you, though, from what I've researched, we got nothing on the permissiveness of that first century area in Pergamum. I, I'd even make the case that the virtue of, of chastity, of modesty, was one um, that was completely new and introduced by Christians, by the gospel in the ancient world. And I know Christians have you know, a mixed record on this, sometimes swinging the pendulum a little too far to you know, Puritan culture and, and restrictive celibacy uh, mandates. Even this recent you know, purity movement of my youth that often did, I think, damage to young people. But by and large, the Christian ethic of monogamy has tried to frame sexuality as something sacred and meaningful and reserved for commitment, for covenant, actually. Not so in first century Pergamum. The, you know, an ancient writer sums up the culture of the day. Let me read what he said. Uh, this is from the first century. We have prostitutes for pleasure. We have concubines for the sake of daily cohabitation. We have wives for the purpose of having children legitimately and for having a faithful guardian of our household affairs. Wives, mistresses, one night stands. Hookups. Friends with benefits. 
summer flings, Netflix and chill. So here's these new disciples of Jesus. They're formally part of the Pergamum culture. And now they're trying to live by this whole new set of ethics, the the ways of Jesus. And no doubt it wasn't easy, right? These Baalamite Nicolotians, people uh, supposedly on the same team, and their teaching is to justify or to, uh, to give oneself over to any sexual practice. I mean, talk about a teaching that you would, that would be easy to want to believe. Pastor Balaam said it was okay, right? Is Jesus some kind of prude who, who hates sex? No. He created us as sexual beings to, to have actually satisfying Sex lives. He hates this theology, though, because of, of the basic distortion of the imago Dei, of, of being created in the image of God. It's, it's a misunderstanding of our body and how we were created. Let me see if I can just encapsulate this, this heretical teaching. It goes something like this. Look, the human body isn't sacred. It's just a collection of, of cells uh, it's just biological material, right? From dust to dust and all that. And one day we'll be liberated from this broken earthly vessel. So, so what you do with your body now is really nobody's business. We've been given this, this one-use uh, disposable body. So just tear it up while you can. It's the soul that matters, right? You've heard some version of this. Uh, I think every generation has some philosophy that has ascribed to this. And like, you know, like the best deceptive ideas, it, it actually has elements of truth in it. But it tragically misunderstands the nature of how we were created. The New Testament word for body is the Greek word soma. And for such a small four-letter word, it just carries a ton of nuance. I don't think there's an English equivalent. Um, the soma is not only the material body it encompasses also the imperishable form of our of our personality of our essence the soma is the real self the whole self you could put it you could put it this way human beings don't have a soma we are soma therefore what i do with my body i do with me what i do to my body i do to me and my body you know, maybe my outer self and my soul, my inner self, but both are the same self. I know this is kind of esoteric, but just stay with me because from the aspect even of what science can and can't prove, I think you know intrinsically that there is more than just biology involved in the sex act. That, you know, the act itself involves soma, our real self, the very essence of of a person's being, which is why two people seldom feel the same way towards each other after sexual intimacy. They've shared something more than biology. They've, They've shared their soma, their very person. Lewis Swedes writes, 
Uh, the prostitute sells their body with an unwritten understanding that nothing personal will be involved in the deal. The buyer gets their sexual needs satisfied without having anything personally difficult to deal with afterwards. He pays his dues, and they are done with each other. The reality of the act, unfelt and unnoticed by them, is this. It unites them, body and soul, to each other. Folks, there's no such thing as casual sex. No matter how casual people treat it, nobody can go to bed with someone and leave their soul parked outside. When God gave us this framework for for self-restraint, you know, it doesn't come from this killjoy trying to, you know, stamp out the abundant life. It actually comes from a desire to protect. It comes from a respect for reality, the reality of of body and soul intertwining. That's why Jesus is passionately intolerant of this heretical teaching. They they fail to appreciate that there's more than biology at work here, more than flesh and blood. It is our real selves. And we, we violate our real selves when we use our body contrary to God's plan. And listen, I don't want anybody here to feel shame uh, for sins of the past, for mistakes of their youth. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. If I had the time, I would just hammer this point until I was sure that no one was leaving here with shame. What I do want to do, though, is protect you from a path that you may regret. I want to emphasize God's good plan for your sexual wholeness and enjoyment. I want to provide just even a little counter narrative from the, you know, from scripture against the bombardment of messages that we receive today that says, it's only sex. You only live once. What's the harm? Um, I guess I want you to see that this actually grieves God. He's saying, dear Knack, please don't get suckered in by the sexual ethics of the world. Please don't get fooled by Christians who justify a lower standard, a plan that is not in my plan. I have something so much better for you. I can remember when shows would come on TV, uh, the sitcoms that would treat one night stands as a punchline. The movies or dramas, you know, where two unmarried people would find themselves alone and the music would swell and the lighting would change and the seduction was meant to feel like a fairy tale. And when I was a kid, at least those scenes on TV would fade to black. Now nothing is really left to the imagination. My folks would uh, turn off the TV at that point. I would do the same when my kids were younger. It becomes tiring uh, to battle through it, though, doesn't it? To be, always be the censor, uh, to combat that pervasive messaging from the culture. And so, I don't know about you, but you, you kind of start to give up. Uh, you, you justify it. You separate the art from the artist, from the message. You just enjoy the sitcom for what it is. And I'm not making any appeal for you to throw your TV out the window or anything. I'm just saying... There is a battle going on, isn't there? A a, a battle about the amount of time and messaging that culture gets versus 
the messaging of Jesus. And sometimes it feels like we're losing that battle, which is maybe why Jesus comes with this strong warning. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. It's actually good news, folks. Jesus does not stand by passively. He is passionately intolerant of falsehoods. He knows they enslave. He knows the truth will set you free. So the Lord with the sword in his mouth, he makes two wonderful promises as he closes this letter. First, to the one who overcomes, to the one who repents, to the one who turns from the old ways and joins me in my mission, I will give you um, hidden manna. And that's a reference to the Old Testament, which if you, if you know a bit about the Old Testament, that helps understand that. Just as Israel was fed bread from heaven as they made their way towards the promised land, so will the faithful church be fed as we make our way towards the city of God in this new kingdom with a new perfect king. And it's interesting too, I think, that Jesus says, I am the bread of life which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. It's like Jesus is saying to us, why would you fool around eating at at the tables of culture and other small g gods when you can come to me and eat food that truly satisfies? I am that manna. And second, Jesus says, and I'll close with this, I will give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Okay, so this is kind of cryptic, symbolic stuff. And if you want to go down the rabbit hole of research, I'll, I'll lend you some commentaries. You'll find out there's like at least nine interpretations of theories of what this white stone means. Interestingly, the youth group that I came from out, out west at my former church was called Whitestone Youth Ministry. And people would ask, oh, what does that mean? And I'd say, yeah, that's a verse from Revelation. And then I'd quickly walk away before there was any follow-up questions. Uh, uh, but let me just try this one interpretation for you before we, before we close and see if it resonates with you. There was this ancient symbolic ritual where two friends who were about to part ways, they would take a white stone like this and crack it in half and inscribe each other's name on each half. And one would take one half and one would take the other. And it became this tangible token of their friendship and a promise to maintain their friendship as long as the stone lasted. You know, we actually have a very similar version of this in today's culture, don't we? It's sort of like the jewelry world, right? You know, you take half the heart, I'll take half the heart. And, and uh, it's a sign of our friendship. They, they link together. Could it be that Jesus is promising intimate friendship with us? His name on my half, my name on his half, and he actually writes a new name on it, a new identity that he gives me. You know, Jesus says, your name was Simon, but I've renamed you Peter, which means rock, and on this rock, I'm gonna build my church. And he says, you used to be Saul and you were killing Christians and you were working for the enemy and I'm going to name you Paul, which means humble. And you're going to be the most instrumental person in the expansion of the gospel. 
and my kingdom. And Jesus is telling some of us today, you used to be called addicted. I'm renaming you disciplined. You used to be called erratic. I'm calling you sound mind. You used to be called chaos. Your new name is peace. You were orphaned. I'm changed your name to dearly beloved child. The old labels don't apply. You have been transformed, reborn, bought at a price. You have a new purpose, a new passion, a new identity, a new name written in glory. Somebody say amen to that. And not only will our friend Jesus know us like like we've never been known before. First Corinthians says, we only know Jesus in part, but there'll come a day when we will know him fully as he fully knows us like our best friend. I'd like us to celebrate communion and then I promise we will close. And during this song, if you would just come up and uh, sort of self-serves, let an elder just give you the uh, bread. You take uh, a juice, but would you also take a white stone? That's yours to keep. And maybe you'll find it in your pocket next week. And you go, oh, yeah, Jesus calls me friend. Isn't that amazing? He's given me a new name, and he calls me friend. And when you feel... uh, when you feel ready to take the communion elements, you just do that in your own way and in your own time. So I invite you to come now as the, as the band leads us.